The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. God has set forth this amazing plan. He's begun and he wars. And in the Old Testament, he's preserved a line, a line unto the Messiah. And he's established this entire framework, a lot of promises, theological as well as logistical, to get a nation into place, to have an effect on other nations so that everyone would understand his plan and everyone would understand the gospel. That is the job of Israel. And all of these promises and all that's involved in this salvation and all the dynamics of it, it is all moving to a certain point and that point is the New Testament. The Old Testament ends intentionally so that it lands into the New Testament and here's the question, is God going to fulfill it? Is God going to deliver on all these promises, on all that's involved in salvation, on the Messiah, the God-man who alone can fulfill all things? Is God going to do that? And here's what the New Testament says, absolutely. 100%. That's exactly what's going to take place. God has laid a foundation for his plan of salvation. He has foretold that salvation, and it flows from Old Testament to New Testament, and here's what we see. He is going to fulfill that salvation. It takes four Gospels, four Gospels to recount the full dynamics of the life of Christ. It's that rich, and when you understand the big picture, when you understand the flow of redemptive history, you start to realize that's why the Gospels are so detailed because every detail matters. Everything pops when you understand the Old Testament and connect that with the New Testament. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic Jewish king and expectations for Israel. We see that in his birth, in his genealogy that goes back to Genesis. We see that in his calling. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount, that he is the final Moses who gives the authoritative law and deliverance and salvation. We see that in his miracles. We see that even as the final David, that he goes in the triumphal entry, and when he enters into Jerusalem, he casts and heals all the lame and the blind in Jerusalem. You say, why does that matter? Because earlier, David kicked out all the blind and lame in Jerusalem when he conquered it. Here, Jesus actually heals them all, upping David. He bypasses and transcends what David did, and therefore he is the final David. Everything in the book of Matthew demonstrates with every single detail, Jesus is the one. He is the true king. He is the final David. He is the one who fulfills all things. And then you have the book of Luke, and it shows that Jesus' life isn't just the fulfillment of messianic expectation. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and how Jesus is the final Adam. We see that in Jesus' genealogy and birth. It goes back to Adam in Luke chapter 3. We see that his reach goes to the Gentiles as he gets on a boat. And unlike Jonah, who ran away from God on a boat, to get away from the Gentiles. Jesus gets on the boat actually to go to the Gentiles. He's a reverse Jonah because he is the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the God over history. He comes to earth changing things from one way to another way because he is the savior, the final Adam. And that's in the book of Luke. And then you have the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, what we behold is that Jesus is definitely man. He's God-man, but within that, he is definitely man, and within that, he will suffer as a suffering servant of Isaiah. And we behold that throughout the book of Mark. It's a book of action that says over and over again, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. It shows that as the man, as the God-man, he is authoritative, but he does suffer.
He is a suffering servant. One of the easiest illustrations of that is the feeding of the 5,000. It says in that text that people laid down on the green grass. Why does the grass have to be green? I mean, of course it was, but why mention it? Why write that down? Well, it goes back to a familiar passage. Where have we heard people lying down on green grass? Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, it says that the good shepherd, he will make his people lie down on green pastures. And who is that good shepherd? That is Yahweh. Yahweh is the good shepherd. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the ultimate servant. He is the ultimate shepherd. And we see that in his life. Mark interweaves this all the way through. After all, Mark chapter 10 reminds us that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That alludes back to Isaiah chapter 53, to the suffering servant who will die for the many. And so with that, Mark shows us, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he is the true Caesar. Yes, he is the one who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords, but that involves suffering. And John, at the same time, reminds us, but there is extreme exaltation because Jesus is God, because Jesus is divine, because the Father and him are one. And in fact, if you walk through the book of John, you will see that Jesus is the God of Israel. He's the God who marries people, just like God united Adam and his wife in the garden. Jesus is the one who provides bread for the people, just like God provided bread for his people Israel in the wilderness. He's the one who crosses over the water just like God crosses over the waters of the Red Sea. He, that is Jesus, is the one that renames people like Simon to Peter. And just like God did so with Abram to Abraham, God is the God of Israel and Jesus is that God. He is the God of Israel. And John demonstrates that without a shadow of a doubt. And so you have one perfect life. Every detail matters. Everything is important. Everything is displayed. And it demonstrates that the fullness of God and all of his plan in its plan for Israel and the nations and history and the world involving Adam and the Israelite king and the final Davidic king and God and man and putting all of that priestly ministry ministry and all of that saving ministry together, Jesus in his life, in his time here on earth, he bears all of that weight on his shoulders and accomplishes it all. And it all moves to one point of that perfect life. And that is his death and resurrection. On the cross, Matthew reminds us this is the fulfillment of the Davidic king. Why? Because this is the fulfillment of Davidic suffering. That's why the Psalms are invoked. In Mark, this is the fulfillment of the suffering servant. Why? Because this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. This is the suffering servant, penal substitutionary atoning death. Luke reminds us this is the fulfillment of Adam. Why? Because what we see on the cross is a conversation that takes place and the thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The word paradise is actually the Greek word for the word Eden. Jesus is the final Adam. And what does our Lord say in the book of John? It is finished. Only the divine could accomplish the divine mission that requires the divine to do. And Jesus has finished it. He has finished all of scripture and all of that hinges on penal substitutionary atonement. All of that hinges on satisfying the wrath of God and his justice against sin because that is the issue from the book of Genesis till now. And Jesus in his death did it. He fulfilled it all. But of course, we know it doesn't just stop there. That's why there's a resurrection. Why is the resurrection on the first day of the week? Because it's the first day of a new creation. History starts afresh. 
history has a new trajectory. This is a new day, a new dawn. Why is it on the third day? Because he rises on the third day to match Old Testament prophecies that talk about how Israel will be raised on the third day. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His hope and what he accomplished for and what he established in accomplishing that hope becomes our hope in that regard. Everything is made new because of the resurrection. The cross put an end to sin and death and now we have new life in him. That is the nature of the gospel and when you have that, everything transforms around. All of history transforms around and God in his son, in one perfect life, accomplished that end. That's what we see in the life of Christ he fulfills. And the whole complexity and the whole glory makes his life stand out and shows the significance of his life. So what happens now? Christ ascends into heaven and he establishes his church. And the church has a function. It has a mission. And we see that in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we learn the church's mission is to testify to Christ. We are his witnesses. That's what Acts 1 reminds us. And we are all about Christ. And we hold the gospel. Why does that matter? Because if you understand the story, everything Every single thing hinges on whether you can deal with sin. That's what we saw at the beginning. That's what was elaborated on and illustrated through Israel's history. That's what Christ fulfills. And so now we have the key, the core, the linchpin to everything in this world. It is in the gospel and it is fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. It is secured. It is paid for by that. And so the church has the most important duty to witness and testify to that reality, to that one. And here's what Acts establishes. That's what God is doing right now. That's God's agenda for this time. The church is God's institution for this time. There are lots of institutions, lots of businesses, lots of operations happening in this world, but God's institution, God's instrument for this period it's the church, and Acts establishes that. Acts establishes the beauty and the power of the gospel illustrated through the church, that now Jews and Gentiles can come together. Why does that matter? Because the gospel is sufficient for all. His son is truly the final Adam, not just over Israel, but as Adam was over humanity, the final Adam is over a new humanity, and that's what the church demonstrates. That's part of what's going on in Acts chapter 2, as people are speaking in tongues, signaling that God has made man a new creation, and that is being contained and demonstrated within the church. The church is God's instrument for this time. The church has authority. It is the one that has the ability to advocate and to present the gospel and to even condemn those in sin for their sins prophetically in that sense. And the church is not only authoritative, the church is global. The church is global. We see that in the book of Acts with the apostle Paul's life as he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth through three missionary journeys. And on top of all of that, we see that the church is noble because when Paul was put on trial toward the ending of the book of Acts, we see that the church's activity and the church's business is actually good. And when Paul was put as a prisoner on a boat and we think that he might be a criminal, in the end, he becomes the leader of the boat. And when the boat sinks, 
sinks, they put them on a new boat. And here's the irony. On the new boat, the boat is actually labeled and shaped and constructed in a way that indicates that it's the boat that brings salvation. It's the boat that is the bringer and the harbinger of justice. And it's bringing Paul to Rome. God has a sense of humor and he's establishing, here's the church. It is the demonstration of the gospel. It is all about the witness of Christ. It is a first fruit of what is to come. It is a beacon of hope. It is the authoritative institution for this time. It is the global institution for this time. And it is the most noble institution for this time. This is the church and we are part of that. And we have a mission and there is no more important mission. This is what God is about. He has an eternal plan. He has a plan that stretches for all creation, answers the most pressing and important issues. It all revolves around Genesis 3.15 and we are a part of that now. And if you understand the big picture and even the book of Acts, we should be driven to say, we've got to live out that mission. That matters. It is important. It's crucial. And it is because it's all part of the big picture. Christ has won. He has come and fulfilled. He's coming back again. And in this meantime, the church is not just a nice place. It's the institution for this time. This is where the activity of God is, and we should be involved in it. Let me put it simply this way. Sometimes we wonder, can we make the Bible relevant to our lives? Actually, what's going to happen in the end is God is going to ask, are you relevant to the Bible? Because he has this great plan, we're part of it, and are we doing our part? Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.